High School Slumber Party is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things Cage Club related, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome, Shakespearean thespians, drama teachers, fans of Elizabeth Shue, and apologies to all you citizens of Tucson. This is High School Slumber Party, the podcast where me and some friends look back at our teenage years through the lens of some iconic high school-centric films. I'm Brian Rodriguez, and the party's at my place this evening. But first, school's still in session, and we have some homework to chat about. This was your assignment. I would like to see the results. First off, apologies for the slightly late delivery. I got my booster on Thursday night, and I didn't think it would affect me, but it did. I hardly remember yesterday. That was a tough one. But we're here. We're ready. High School Slumber Party never stops, and I'm so glad I'm able to present this one to you today. But first, homework, as I said, hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. While you're there, give us a five-star rating or perhaps a positive review. Anything to help good old family programming that is High School Slumber Party. Of course, you could tell a friend about High School Slumber Party. That helps. Share our message of love and peace and teen movies to everyone with ears that work. Only one of my ears works, but I can still listen. And I could still clearly podcast, so... Whoever you can share it to, just share it to. Oh my god, I'm so excited for you to hear today's episode. Hope you did your homework and I hope you watched Hamlet too. A little movie about a sequel, about making a sequel I should say, to one of the greatest plays of all time. Comedy, of course. Two of my good friends are here, Mike Manzi and John Harden. We haven't talked in a triumphant together, a threesome together, in many, many, many years. So excited to talk to the two of them about this film. Hope you did your homework, by the way, and listen to Monday's episode. It was an AP episode. We covered 2020's Valley Girl. That was a lot of fun with Isling Addington. Always is when we do AP episodes. So check that out in the archive at cagehub.me. That's cagehub.me, or wherever you get your podcasts. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The bell does not dismiss you. I dismiss you. You're seniors. You should know that by now. In the words of the great, great William Shakespeare, sweet flowers are slow and weeds make haste. Be a sweet flower, my dear. Be a sweet flower. And be patient. Because we're going to get to the episode right now. So pack your favorite jammies. Tell your mother to me up Ryan's. Because we're about to get our party on. Let's leave you with, what, what else should I leave you with? Come on. The best song in this movie. Rock me. Sexy Jesus. Class dismissed.
He's totally the man, the man with the plan. He traveled through time in an awesome custom van. Moralistically, he taught us to be good, how to set our souls free and do all the shit we should. Now we do the right deeds, we go to church and such, and we stop smoking weed, well at least not as much. And we can't forget to mention the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them. Slam, bam, spank you, ma'am. Do unto you. Rock me, rock me, rock me, sexy Jesus. He died for our sins. You gotta believe us. Rock me, rock me, rock me, sexy Jesus. I'm very excited to talk this one. This one is, is going to be fun. I feel like we all met around this. Well, we no, we did all meet at the same time, actually. <laughs> it's so crazy because, Mike, I talk to you a lot on podcast. And, John, I talk to you a lot in the real world. But it's coming together. Some, some old memories are coming back as I speak. But before I get ahead of myself, Mike, since you are the more of the podcast veteran, why don't you introduce yourself and then... Give the lead to good old John Harden. Hey guys, I'm Groucho Marx. I say funny stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a random line in the movie. It's <laughs> uh, my favorite line from the movie. Uh, Mike Manzi, RHS, class of '97, go Maroons. And John, can you follow that lead? Yeah, I can. I can do it. John Harden, uh, Zavarian Brothers High School, class of 2005, go Hawks. Go Hawks. Awesome. So, what I alluded to, we uh. When I say shot a little movie, I literally mean shot a little movie, not like, you know, uh, Sean Connery talking about I shot a little movie and it's usual suspects or something. I actually mean, you know, we shot a little movie. When was that? How long ago was that? Wait, 20, we started 2012, I think, or 2013. A decade. I think. Ten years. Wow. That's crazy. That's crazy. A little bit older, a little bit wiser now. I'd never seen this movie, Hamlet 2. I mean, I'd heard of it on, like, lists and stuff, but I'd never seen it at all. Mike, you really like it. Uh, you suggested it way back when. So what's your history with Hamlet 2? Yeah, it doesn't go that far back. I only saw it, like, a few years ago. And they, um, let's see, when did this when did this sucker come out? Oh, eight. So I probably saw it in, like, I don't know, 2010, 2012, 2013, around there. My friend Andrea showed it to me. She's like, you never seen this? She's like, you like Steve Coogan. You you know, you're like knowing me, knowing you. I always hear you saying, aha, like all the time. Like, how have you not watched this? I was like, I'm just not familiar with his American movie career because it's just not on, on the map, you know. But I watched this and I swear the first time I watched this, I was dying of laughter. Like, I don't know why or how I connected with this movie. Like, I, there's a moment, I think, that is sort of similar to like, Eddie and the Lobster Tank and Venom, where you're either like with this movie or against it or, at times. But like there was just a, a point where I just lent myself over to this movie and it became one of my favorite. Uh, I watch it like all the time. It's like honestly like one of my top five favorite comedies still is. This screening was great. And like the more I watch it, seriously, the last 20 minutes, I start like bawling now. Like it's like Elton John starts playing. It's like, just, I don't know, but yeah, I love this movie. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking more about it and I'm happy to be here. And John, when he suggested this movie and I looked it up, I'm like, wow, 
John Harden, my guy, checks a lot of boxes here. Ha- Hamlet, too. You are our resident Shakespeare expert, and I believe Ham- Hamlet is a Shakespeare play, correct? Yeah, it is. I, I don't think my expertise is going to be very relevant <laughs> in this particular case. <laughs> but yes, that is usually my role on this show. I do provide uh, the expertise in that regard. Also, though, you are an actor. This movie is about an actor. Absolutely. Yes, this is also true. And you are a teacher by trade as well. So three boxes. That's a lot of boxes. Yeah, you're right, actually. The... Uh... Running a theater classroom is also something that I have done, albeit not for a high school, but uh, definitely for some people for whom uh, theater was not their first choice of class. <laughs> so I can relate at least that far. And you were a theater kid, right? For sure. A lot of boxes here. I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, we used to do Shakespeare in 60 Seconds with you, John, but you already kind of stole my thunder there. Largely irrelevant today. Yeah. yeah i don't think i don't know i mean we could do it but uh the idea of summarizing hamlet for someone you know this is nothing nothing (laughs) i mean there are a couple characters who right hamlet isn't it (laughs) yeah (laughs) his father ophelia yeah uh but laertes but Brian, I feel like I feel like this is like we may as well have John Brooks on to talk about religion for this, you know, because it's like almost it's got like as much Jesus as it does Hamlet for some reason. But that is true. We'll, we'll get there. But you didn't hear where John went to school, Mike. He went to good old Catholic school. So there you go. Yeah, I can actually uh, provide. Yeah, that's also not necessary, but <laughs> <laughs> some dogmatic expertise as well. Yeah, if we exactly. need it. Yeah. Yeah, I think if you look into the reading, uh, the writings of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> well, I was actually wondering, like, in all honesty, if there was any sort of thread to any Shakespeare, you know how just like Romeo and Juliet's been adapted a billion times and stuff like, is there anything Shakespeare at all at the core of the idea of like the higher learning motif, I guess, for lack of a better term, just this idea of a guy out of his depth that needs to turn a bunch of people around like, and do something major. I, I mean, that almost, in a way, feels like a Shakespearean comedy of some kind. So, I don't know. Hmm. Um, yeah, maybe uh, maybe there's something in there of, um, of Midsummer, you know, which is called out pretty early in the, in the movie when Coogan's talking to, when Dana is talking to Octavio, whom we initially meet as Haywood. <laughs> like he, he says he'd like to see his bottom. And bottom, of course, is the like the goofball character in Midsummer. Because that that show is about, among other things, there's like two actually three major plots in that show. But one of them is, you know, these amateur theatricals trying to put on a show, and they are ridiculously incompetent at it and there's so there's like a little bit of of that maybe but uh yeah i don't yeah (laughs) i'll take it it. that's exactly what i was hoping for as like an answer just that there was some kind of kernel from something uh shakespeare like or something you know more that they were following closely like even if it's just like a 10 thing i hate about you sort of like closeness right where they took a Totally. piece of something and ran with it. John, had you seen this one before? No. No. Um, it had been suggested to me a couple of times. I owned a copy of it for a bit. <laughs> I don't remember how that happened, but I 
just never made time for it. You know, I have a bad habit of that. I have an awful lot of books that I own that, you know, I have not ever picked up and read. I just moved recently and like got rid of a bunch of them because I was finally honest with myself. So, you know, I have (laughs) getting things and not getting through them. I was always curious about it. I like Coogan for sure. He's just a strange kind of, you know, he's a strange man who makes like nasty little films. I actually have met him. Oh, wow. yeah. It's, it's not much of a story at all, but it is just kind of an amusing thing that like I waited on him. He came into uh, B Bar, the place that I worked from the ages of like 23 to 25 or something like that. And um, he came in and I was like, that's that's Steve Coogan. And like, he handed me his credit card and it was like S Coogan. And I was so like, cool. <laughs> I was like, yep. <laughs> you know? And so I just gave him the like, are you Steve Coogan? And he said, yes, I am. And I said, it's really a pleasure to meet you, sir. It stuck out my hand. He said, well, it's nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, man. It's like, yeah. it's like that movie he made where him and his friend went around to all the different restaurants. Like, it's like an episode of that. Oh, of the, uh, yeah, the trip, right? Yeah, the trip. Yeah, it's like the trip yeah. number zero. Yeah, Did he you... was very polite. And of course, like every other famous person I ever met in New York, I immediately ran out of things to say. and was just like, all right, well, have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. You know, what are you going to do? Be like, do your Michael Caine? You know what I mean? Like, he's not Yeah, <laughs> it was just, oh, it was, I mean, like, I... The only more embarrassed I felt was when I met Victor Garber in a similar fashion. And I like was, you know, totally felt anyway, that's we'll do that. Wait, for a wait. I mean, I don't think I don't know if we're going to cover a Victor Garber film ever. So what did you say to Victor Garber? Oh, I like ran. I like saw him on the subway and like came over to him. I was just like, I'm a huge fan. And like, da, 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 da. and then like felt bad for bothering him. This was very much in my strong. I hate myself phase of my life. Also known as, like, the couple of years after you get out of acting school. <laughs> and was like, I shouldn't have said anything. And like, <laughs> <laughs> Poor man, you know, he's probably like, it's okay, you know? <laughs> but it's funny because, uh, I mean, we'll get into it. We're jumping the gun here. Like, it's similar to, like, his Elizabeth Shue thing in this, right. <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> when he meets her but don't don't want to uh, skip this step every week i read the back of the dvd or vhs or whatever it's a shame john you got rid of that dvd because you could have read it for me but i'll have to do it one high school drama teacher is about to make a huge number two in this wildly irreverent and completely outrageous movie from the producers of little miss sunshine when his school's theater department is threatened to be cut Failed actor, it's a little harsh, failed actor turned high school drama teacher, Dana Marsish. Marsish. That I love. Writes a play that he hopes will solve everything. A sequel to Shakespeare's Hamlet. Now, staging one of the most politically incorrect musical theater extravaganzas ever seen, Dana and his class will put it all on the line for one controversial, conflicted night of hilarity. Pretty simple there. So this is directed by Andrew Fleming. I knew him because he's the director of The Craft, a formidable teen film here on High School Slumber Party. But Mike, you said you were looking at his IMDb and you said you really liked his work. What else has he done? Well, just from from what I've seen, I don't like as much as I thought because I just saw he did the remake of The In-Laws, which, tisk tisk. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I remember... I remember a bunch of his movies. I remember Threesome. I remember The Craft. Uh, I love that film, Dick, that he Oh, made. he did Dick. Yeah, I really like Dick, yes. too. Oh, oh. That is a, Don't uh, take that, that sound actually, bite. 
Can we uh, clip that? Yeah. <laughs> do whatever you want with it. I love Dick. I watch Dick constantly. I'm secure that I like the movie Dick. Dan Hedaya as Nixon. That is actually a really funny movie. And Kiki Dunst, Oscar nominee. And yeah, Jersey Strong. The other Oscar nominee, Michelle Williams. Wow, two Oscar nominees in Dick? That's crazy. Yeah, it's also got Ryan Williams in there for uh, Ryan Reynolds, sorry, for a minute. So, oh, it does? I, I don't remember of, that. It's kind of a dent, I guess, in the movie, but no. <laughs> Will Ferrell plays Bob Woodward? I didn't remember yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It's got a bunch of kids in the hall are in it. Another one plays Bernstein, I think. Bruce McCullough plays Bernstein. Foley's in there somewhere. Anyway, yeah, I just didn't know he did this movie until after, like, all this time I love this movie. I didn't know he made those other movies, and I'll check out his other movies. Yeah, definitely uh, familiar with this teen film, Oeuvre. John, you already mentioned Steve Coogan, our lead here. I love Steve Coogan as well. Maybe I think he's his person in the trip, and maybe that's why, but I'm always happy for him when I see him in things, because, again, I picture that character, especially in the first one, where he's, like, really trying to get these roles and stuff. Rest of the cast, I was really surprised. A lot of great people here, a lot of fun people here. Catherine Keener plays his wife, which is awesome. Uh, Amy Poehler is in the movie as the ACLU lawyer person. David Arquette in a very understated performance. (laughs) Gary. Oh, my God. And then I mentioned Elizabeth Shue, one of my favorites, one of my Growing up crushes, loved her in Karate Kid and Adventures in Babysitting. Mike, you and I have talked about Elizabeth Shue plenty on this show. Oh, yeah. I was surprised she was playing Elizabeth Shue in this as a nurse, even though she's in, like, a 1950s nurse outfit the entire time, but whatever. <laughs> so this is this is actually the moment I was talking about. This is, to me, when Eddie gets in the lobster tank in Venom and starts eating a lot of the lobsters in the restaurant. And it's like, you're kind of with, I feel like, personally, either, like, buy this or you can't really go along for the rest of the ride in my opinion but i feel like this isn't really done as much as i think it is and i always forget that she shows up in this movie when she does and it's just such a delight it's her her interpretation of herself i don't know how else to put it but like the version of herself that she's playing is hilarious so she just feels like she's here to play i'm sorry to be so forward but you look a lot like my favorite actress of all time elizabeth shoe yeah i i am her yeah but you you really look like her well, that's because I am her. Oh, my God. I knew it in my heart, soul. Oh, my God. I am freaking out. Ah! I'm freaking out. You, you were wonderful in leaving Las Vegas. Oh, thank and you. So fabulously funny in Adventures in Babysitting. Not forgetting Cocktail with Tom Cruise. What is he like? He seems totally great. What are you doing in Tucson? Oh, my God. I'm freaking out. Um, I'm actually a nurse now. I just, you know, got kind of sick of the business, you know? Sick of all the horrible people, and it's all about being a celebrity now. Anyway, there's a real shortage of nurses out there, and uh, I like taking care of people. Oh, my God. I didn't hear anything you just said because I'm too excited. Yeah, no, definitely. It just amazes me, the outfit. And, and this is not the only film that does this. Like, when was the last time you saw a nurse in an outfit like that in your lifetime? Ever? No. Just like Vietnam War movies or World War II movies and stuff like that. But yeah, I guess, you know, if you're into the stripogram scene, but like, (laughs) it's just, it's just a fun character, a funny character. And uh, give me more Elizabeth Shue. I I love Elizabeth Shue. Who else? Who else? Oh, Skylar Astin played like the theater kid, Rand, I suppose. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's in a bunch of stuff. He's in like Pitch Perfect and stuff. Um, I got him confused for the guy in the, um, I always forget it, the one with the broken arm and they digitally de-aged him. 
Evan something. I thought I always I thought oh, this oh, was oh, that, uh, yeah. Like I got this kid confused with that kid, and ben, I'm like ben, I was ben like Platt. oh. I'm so glad this isn't that kid. Like I always thought that they were that was the kid from Pitch Perfect to, uh, series, but it's this kid from the Pitch Perfect series. I love how Dear Evan Hansen, because the movie has been reduced to oh that that kid with the broken arm that they de-aged. <laughs> well, like I'm not into no, not that I'm not into theater, but like I don't know that play and the history and every all the politics behind any of it. I don't even know what it's about, you know. But like I just know they did a version where they very creepily digitally dh'd him because he was already too old to play the role i don't know i can tell you what's up about dear evan hansen if you want but uh i covered it briefly we're gonna cover it going forward but i was jarred by what the actual plot of dear evan hansen is so john why don't really you really briefly tell mike what dear evan hansen is about so that he doesn't have to be as jarred as i was watching it okay sure dear evan hansen is the story of a kid evan hansen yeah, I guess I'll try to tell it in the structure of the play, right? So he, like, is dealing with depression and goes to school and writes a note to himself on the computer, like, trying to, like, buck himself up and say that today's going to be, like, a good day, right? And does he print it out? I feel like he prints it out. And yeah, has yeah. It, right? So it's important that there's a copy. And then he runs into another kid, right, who is a bully but also like a massive depressive and they are not friends at all and he is you know a complete jerk but also dealing with awful things and ends up this is the jarring part killing himself hmm. and so pretty early in the show there's a teen suicide and it's dark that's not in the trailer at all yeah no exactly i'm like oh fun fun musical movie i'm like what <laughs> yeah Oh, yeah. Very serious. So um, I'll just tell you like enough to, you know, I don't need to tell you the entire plot summary, especially because some people might be like, spoilers! <laughs> that letter gets picked up and, you know, it's addressed to Evan Hansen. So like it says, Dear Evan Hansen at the top. So it's assumed that this was written by someone else to oh. Evan. Right? And I think like Evan doesn't have the... You know, he's, like, too humiliated to be like, yeah, I wrote that letter to myself. And so he's like, yeah, so-and-so wrote it to me. Or they, like, think that that's what happened and he doesn't correct them. Yeah, and he eventually oh. goes along with it. It's like a world's greatest dad situation. You ever see that Robin Williams movie directed by Bob Kekulthway? He, like, <laughs> his not. son accidentally kills himself, but he's a great poet. And his, and the dad is a failed writer, so he steals his son's poetry and passes <laughs> it off as his own. It's, Jesus Christ. You should cover that. It's a high school movie. It's Is incredible. It? Wow. Yeah, that, it's that's incredible. dark as hell. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that okay. is uh, that is very much the deal, and and like then of course inevitably, right? He gets in too deep, and uh, you know it, it all gets very difficult. And all right, yeah, that is not at all what I thought it was about. Exactly. I mean, I, I assumed it was a kid dealing with like depression or something, but like and like he broke his arm, possibly like he was the one that tried to hurt himself or bullying, and like I just yeah, it, that's oh okay. he okay. he did he did that's like a whole part of it. But know? people need to know a little bit more before thinking like oh fun fun musical like they just yeah it's rough yeah i saw it i saw it when it was still off broadway you know like my i just oh, wow. have well it's i just i know a lot of people you know i am not important in the theater but i know a lot of people in the theater and when you know a lot of people it's usually possible to get comp tickets to things 
especially before it was on Broadway, it was not this like completely blown up impossible thing yet. So I went and saw it, but that's my point is I really didn't know anything about it. and was like, Oh my God. <laughs> what is this like, show? That, that wouldn't be like a bad movie, but that is not the bill of goods. They are selling at all. Wow. No. What a bait and switch. No. <laughs> okay. That's irresponsible. Yeah. Skylar Aston is not Ben Platt and he is not in Dear Evan Hansen, Thank but you. he is in this film. <laughs> um, Melanie Diaz, I recognized. Uh, she is one of the girls. She plays Yvonne. She's, she's in a bunch of uh, like indie stuff. Fruitvale Station was the thing that came to mind. Hmm. Very similar tone to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, that's what I that's what I thought. We, you know, not to like tease our like recommendations later in the film, but that was what I was going to recommend. <laughs> uh, Be kind, rewind, a, a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Mike, she was on in a Shia movie that I talk about a bunch. A Guide to Recognizing Your Saints. You remember that one with Channing? Oh, yeah, yeah. I like that a lot. It's got Channing's in that too. Yeah, I, I like the movie because, you know, I think it's shot in a story. I really, really like underrated film. But, uh, yeah, so she's been around a lot. I, you get, like, cameos, too. I don't know if they're considered cameos, but, like, Nat Faxon, who I really like, is the copy oh, store guy. His moment when the when the <laughs> play starts is incredible. Like, I laughed so hard at that point when it starts. And he just goes, like, he, he's, like, clearly smoking weed in front of everybody. <laughs> And then the movie starts, or the show starts, and he like just lets out that giant scream. Is there anyone else you uh, recognized or really stood out in the cast for you? Well, Brian, I mean, you know, I know it might not be coming out in order, but you and I recently talked about a little movie that also had a guy named Marshall Bell in it, who plays the principal in this. He was Gordy's dad in Stand By Me. Oh, yeah. Wow, yeah. Man. Okay, so that's like the second of two of the same kind of thing that happened where, cause I didn't realize that Gary is played by David Arquette. Oh really? That was a similar sense. Yeah. When I like looked at the cast list, I was like, Oh wait, I do know who that is. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't, I don't know. Like his, he doesn't say anything. No. You know, much, and, and he's very understated, which is not how I think of David Arquette. And I didn't notice. And you know, it wasn't until, I looked at the cast list. I was like, oh, that, yeah, okay. That is who that is. <laughs> David Arquette's, like, fourth build here. Like, I'm glad he's working with, like, I'm not saying that, but, like, did you really need David Arquette for that role? He was just, like, a dude, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I think that's part of the joke, too, right? I think, I feel like the movie's filled with that kind of humor. Like, Catherine Keener is, like, way overqualified. <laughs> way overqualified for this movie, too, you know? Like, she's out doing mostly indie dramas until this is 40 i i feel um like i know her mostly from a great movie living in oblivion about making a short uh making like um independent it's about making an independent movie and she's like the main actor in it but like i was very surprised to see her in this yeah david arquette kind of just i mean you know he's kind of like clowning it up in a way i feel right with his performance it's a version of i don't know i guess I, I yeah, I it wasn't bad it was just like funny that it was him <laughs> yeah i think that's part of the joke is like why is it david arquette okay <laughs> and, and another character i want to name is the setting right the city of tucson which gets shit on so much in this movie <laughs> it's like the last line of the movie like, <laughs> you're gonna have a magical life chewy because no matter where you are you won't be in Tucson. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Oh, man. So sorry if you're from Tucson out there. So early moments, things you enjoyed, maybe things you didn't enjoy. First, in my notes, I liked, I liked seeing his reel. I thought that was cool. I thought it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> but when I just like really started to buy into the movie and enjoyed it is when he's talking about, what was it, Aaron Brockovich that he just adapted for his students yeah. and with just the two of them or whatever that there's so there's like the two theater kids um and that's really the only ones in the program at, at first and when he's reading like the what the critic says and it's like a really articulate you know write-up about the play and it ends up being that little kid and he's just like the way steve coogan is playing it and the kid is playing it, i think is so good and so funny because it's just like he's treating it like this is like a actual New York Times critic criticizing his thing, and the kid's just like, whatever. I don't know. Uh, early thoughts on the film? I think this is kind of more extended. I was not as won over by it as my kids. And I'm, I feel bashful about it because his enthusiasm was so compelling. And I love, <laughs> I love to listen to people love things, but I just didn't love it as much. Yeah, but we want differing opinions here. We want differing views. And more importantly, I don't think John, maybe once, but usually you come on and are largely disappointed with everything in a film. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Brian, I'm usually on here like, I love even the crap, right? Like I come on here and I'm like, yeah, pray for the roller boys. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I had issues with Bo as well. (laughs) I don't remember what I did before. Oh, it was all a long time ago now. But uh, yeah, that's fair. You criticized Sidney Poitier's performance, and uh... oh, please, that does not what happened. Too soon. What happened? Yeah, you were like, eh. that movie was strange at times, but I liked that movie. You were like a little, uh... oh, too sir with love. You were like a little forced of a performance. <laughs> I'm just joking. If you can still find that episode in the archives, you can find out that Ryan Rodriguez is a damn liar. But uh, you were on Dead Poets Society, which they mention in this film. Yep. See, I was getting a kick out of that aspect of it. In the film, the class gets a lot bigger because they cut essentially every arts and elective program except theater. So there's a bunch of people who are not interested in theater. To be specific, a bunch of Mexican-American kids... Um, which I mentioned it because it's a big part of the plot, but he, he's uh, he watches like um, Dangerous Minds to, to try. We don't yeah. see it, but he, he talks about it. He watches Dangerous Minds to try to like get in the mindset of a teacher getting through to his students, which is so freaking ri- uh, ridiculous that I just loved. Uh, a lot of callbacks to other uh, high school films, so I was enjoying that. Uh, Patch Adams, Mr. Holland's Opus, a lot of other things <laughs> he brings up too. So, John, early on, what were some of the things that were turning you off? Why did you want to just be like, I don't want to continue this. I want to cancel my appearance. Oh. <laughs> so much, so much <laughs> fictionalization of this day. You know? It's really a little unfair. A little unfair. Um, I feel attacked. I'm kidding. I think that the movie, I will say this. This is definitely where I agree with Mike about being along for the ride or not being critical. Because I just think the movie has to do a, a lot of work. It has to do a lot of work to set up what it wants to do. And then the play itself and, you know, the sort of mayhem of 
the back half of the movie, I think, is a lot funnier and sort of like they're able to knock down dominoes that they set up, right? But, like, right from the beginning of the movie, it feels like we have to kind of get up to speed with a lot of weirdness very quickly, you know, in order to get there. Like, you know, some of that's just the 90-minute runtime, right? It's something I notice in 90-minute films, right, is everything's got to happen faster. But yeah, that's that's what I felt. Like the Elizabeth Shoe thing is a great example, right? Of just like there's a lot of very strange kind of unbelievable things happening right out of mm. the gate. You know, that are yeah. mostly necessary to to get it where it's going and and especially watching it during the day. That's always a thing too when I'm watching <laughs> these movies, I frequently end up having to watch them you know, during the workday cuz I'm like, "Oh yeah, I got to get this in," you know. And and that's a very different setting than like being in the movie theater on a Friday night and you know maybe having had a drink like that's how I want to watch. <laughs> so some of it may also have to do with with extraneous factors as well. I, I agree with you, John, mm-hmm. in that sense. I think again there is a buy-in here. You said that, Mike, as well. But I was thinking too. I kind of knew what to expect with this movie because I, I watched the trailer and Mike, you had alluded to certain things. But, for example, if this was, what year is this, 2008? If this was Will Ferrell, right, as the lead here, a 2008 Will Ferrell movie, Mm, we kind of know it's silly from the jump. Yeah, yeah, like one of those Apatow productions where he's, like, teaching soccer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, something along those lines. And I'm not saying it would be better with Will Ferrell. It probably would not be better with Will Ferrell. But, like, we know what we're getting into. With Steve Coogan and, uh, like, the actors around it and kind of what's going on, at the beginning... Even with a little bit of research, I still was like, is this gonna? Is this like a dramedy? Is this just like a silly movie? But once you get to the point where you realize this is just farce, like that's when I really started being like, oh, some of this shit is hilarious. Yeah. Also, I love well-researched movies, and this was clearly a movie with like a lot of subtext and fun. Not subtext in like a deep way, but subtext in a, in a comedy way. And that's what I want to pivot to a little bit and ask you, John, as the Shakespeare expert... I know you love Shakespeare. I know you've performed many times in Shakespeare. Have you ever done Hamlet? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you teed that up. I played Hamlet. I've done Hamlet. I've been in a production of Hamlet probably four or five times. Should we be saying the name of the play so much? Oh, sorry. Have you played the Scottish (laughs) person? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) I know, Mike. Wrong play. (laughs) So, sorry. Wait, do they do that with Hamlet? Do they do the Danish play? No, they definitely don't do that. Okay, okay, okay. I'm trying to start it. I know it's 2022, but that's so, Macbeth, and I am not. Uh, I am not superstitious, and uh, people get annoyed with me for that fact. But I, I don't care. Macbeth, Macbeth, Macbeth. All right, clowning around. I know you. I know you've been in Hamlet. I know you've done the Hamlet thing. Let's talk like if someone's just a Shakespeare novice. By the way, yeah. I know I sound like an idiot, but bear with me. One of the cornerstone Shakespeare plays, right? Like, like if you play Hamlet. That is a dream role for someone who is a Shakespeare actor, Shakespearean actor, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Hamlet is, you know, it's a role that is enormous, right? I mean, both in it, what it is meant to the history of English-speaking theater and also the size of the part. I mean, it's literally the, it has, he has the most lines of any Shakespearean character. Wow. He dominates the play. And it's not even close. I mean, I can actually, let me see if I can. Oh, they should have called it Blabbermouth. <laughs> Yeah, that was the original working title. <laughs> and actually, the only other thing I would say is like the Hamlet legend actually originally comes from 
Danish myth, right? It's a, it's like a very, very old story that Shakespeare adapted, but it's also thought that he perhaps chose the, not only the subject matter, but also like the changing of the name from like Hamleth to Hamlet because his own son, Hamnet, had died mm. of the plague right around the time of the writing of that play. So it's funny, right? Because the play very much deals with, you know, tension between father and son. And it seems like Shakespeare himself may have been writing from a place of having lost his son. And then we deal with a lot of like daddy issues in the movie as well. I mean, that's like, you know, hit over the head with a hammer. So John, I even know this by tangentially tangentially being in the Shakespeare world with you. It's not an easy word. (laughs) You have invited me to certain performances of yours and, um, you know, specifically many years ago, you would let me hang out with some of your Shakespeare friends. You don't anymore. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're you're a (laughs) fan. No, but it, it it was super cool. From being around them and yourself, just there's such a reverence for the Shakespeare thing, right? But I can only imagine that there's so many... Uh, writers or even actors who have i don't want to even say pitched because that's too heavy but like you can't tell me that you haven't been in a place where like what if we did hamlet but this what if it's like beth but they're all women or something or of course <laughs> you know what i mean so yeah no of course that's that's one of the things about shakespeare is that people the script is good right i mean it you know whatever your feelings about shakespeare like the scripts obviously were extremely popular in their time and have continued to be popular for hundreds of years so you have some kind of baked in quality but they're also public domain so you can do whatever you want to them and you don't have to pay hundreds of dollars to the shakespeare estate again i think that's so cool but it's also something that i'm sure in some circles and some places also gets bastardized as well. That's why I think Hamlet, to make Hamlet 2, as ridiculous as it is, it's such a great thing to pick for, not just the title of the film, but an idea that someone might have to do, right? Like, oh, here's one of the greatest works ever. What would happen if we (laughs) we went back and revisited those ideas? And honestly, maybe someone will... I mean, I'm sure someone could do it better than... Uh, Steve Coogan's character in this movie. I just think it was like a perfect choice knowing what I know about the Shakespeare scene and just Shakespeare in general. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. It is, it is actually uh, as insane as the things that he does to it are. I've seen plenty of, in fact, more and more of the productions done in Shakespeare in the Park, right, which is certainly a very famous uh, New York institution, you know, more and more of them are like they did Love's Labor's Lost a number of this is now already a number of years ago, but it was a musical, right? They replaced many of the long soliloquies and monologues with musical numbers, like the kinds of musical numbers that he's doing in <laughs> Hamlet too are obviously totally different. But it's, you know, that same spirit of like, massive adaptation that's not so uncommon yeah and i mean i was trying to think of this too while watching the movie like there's not a lot of other things that i think have well i mean correct me if i'm wrong shakespeare's probably the most performed playwright in the english language correct i don't have the stats but yeah i would have to i would have to assume so so when something's so common and done so much for so many years someone's always going to put a twist on it right so again i love seeing this character dana do that but also i loved his passion you know what i mean like 
he was just so passionate about his job and 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 his work and maybe not so much like about everything with the job but the fact that like he wanted to put on this play and he wanted to just prove something i don't know i i, I don't want to say i was moved by the performance or moved by it but it kept me engaged with where it was going if that makes sense yeah i understand that yeah yeah I'm very, i was very inspired by this character <laughs> he says something like towards the end about them as a group which i don't quite believe about him but he says about himself where he, he says something about like we lack the talent but we have like the motivation or something you know like they have half of the equation and sometimes that's all you need sometimes you just have the talent sometimes you have the drive but i think that this character ends up being quite talented and he's definitely got the guts I'm surprised. One person I'm surprised that they didn't reference in this was um, was it Boz Lerman who did the Romeo plus Juliet? Because, <laughs> That's like, a Mike. I'm glad you bring it up. Great example of what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about that as you guys were talking, and just how sort of like we talked about, you know, not not to compare Shakespeare to uh, Spider Man or anything like that, but like we were talking about how sort of malleable spider-man is and we talk about that a lot on the monsters that made us with like frankenstein and stuff and like you can really stretch and twist and push a lot of this material to a certain degree it doesn't work with everything but it works with the stuff that is sort of best written you know or like the most well-conceived ideas from the start in a lot of ways and i feel like that was sort of a thing with shakespeare and from what I've experienced with them is just like everything kind of feels like a hit, like in a lot of ways, like the guy is just on fire or something. And like he created these things that could just be, you know, you could just place this in modern day, you know, and they do that all the time with his works. And I found that enjoyable in a, in a lot of ways with his stuff. But what I was really hoping for with this movie, guys, was that the whole thing was the play. You know, just launch into Hamlet 2 for 90 minutes and do it start to finish. But I can understand how that's not the movie. That's, you know, that's a whole different thing going on. But that would be something. That would maybe be too much, you know, maybe maybe going too far. Uh, but just the whole idea of, like, taking, like he says, like, giving this play, not the play, but the characters a second chance is, like, a very interesting idea and something we're all sort of experiencing now with this sort of nostalgia genre of filmmaking with like Ghostbusters and Star Wars and legacy characters coming back and sort of passing the torch and getting another shot and all that kind of stuff that comes together sort of resonates with me in this movie as well when it comes down to the actual sort of like themes of Hamlet 2 itself as well as like all of those father issues involved too. <laughs> That's sort of some of the stuff like that was sort of uh, resonating with me along the way, I guess. Yeah, I thought, I think I thought too, when I saw the ads for this a million years ago, which I remember very well, obviously, especially because of my interest in Hamlet, like the title was going to get my attention and Coogan. But that I, I think I thought too, that there would be more of the play in it. I don't mean more of the original Hamlet, but more of what you're saying. <laughs> no, I knew that. <laughs> more of the performance of the play would be there as opposed to, you know, it all happens kind of in the last 20 minutes. And for the most part, we really have like very little idea of what we're going to see. Uh, so the, the theater critic, the kid kind of convinces him to write his own unique thing. The administration decides that they're ditching the drama department as well. So this is either going to raise money for the drama department to continue or be the final play ever at this school. And the young theater critic kind of convinces him to write his own work 
So he decides to do Hamlet too. And and one of my favorite scenes is when he's writing and like that writer's block and just like I, I can relate to that. I think anyone who's tried to put pen to paper or finger to computer or whatever we say now has gone through that. So I, I wanted to ask you a side question because you both seem to like the play part of it. Do you think that the writers here wrote a full play out for Hamlet 2? Or even like the, the outline of what it would be? Or do you think they just kind of hodgepodge funny scenes together? Because I was curious about that. Maybe it's the writer brain in me. Yeah, no, I definitely don't think they did. <laughs> sometimes, you know, sometimes they do it. I just feel like as much as I said that's what I thought the movie was going to be, I, I think I'm glad that it isn't because when you build it up when you build it up as much as this when it's that important you know it just feels like i don't know there's so many there's so many shows right where somebody's like supposed to write a hit song or you know something like that right and it can be very dangerous to actually have people hear the song in the show you know in the movie it's a good point it's a good point now granted i've seen it be pulled off right because they get like professional great songwriters and you can write a pretty good song and so it's all right but like you know sometimes it can backfire really hard when you're like supposed to do something revolutionary and you know you ask an audience to like buy in and they're like yeah it's not that good you know so <laughs> i think it's better that we just see like funny ideas that they had around the show and it doesn't necessarily we don't have to track the entire thing we certainly see plenty of it yeah, I, I was also thinking about that as well, Brian. This movie also reminds me a lot of Muppets Take Manhattan. And if you remember <laughs> our discussion of that, like they do a bit of the play in the beginning and then they, they do the end in the beginning and then they do the beginning at the end. And we got into like this whole kind of thing. It's like, well, what is the actual if we were to go to Broadway, what would this play be? And we concluded it's the movie we just watched. Like this is like a, a straight adaption well, John, if you think that we podcast too much, that we've done a deep dive of Muppets Take Manhattan on Mike's show, Third Time's a Charm, you're right, we do. But, <laughs> but Mike, I thought about Muppets Take Manhattan too while watching this. I just didn't have the courage to admit it. <laughs> so glad. I'm glad you brought it up. I kind of get that. Like, I, I haven't seen Muppets Take Manhattan probably as many times or, or as recently as <laughs> But the sense of, like, messiness... You know, uh, like there's a certain like funny, weird chaos to Muppets Take Manhattan. Like so much of it is improvised. And I don't know that I feel like all of this is improvised, but there's that same. There's a little bit of messiness to this comedy for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. So I actually when it comes to whether or not the writers and everybody had like the entire Hamlet 2 or the deuce planned out and everything. I, I don't <laughs> I don't think they did. Right. But I bet they had an outline for sure. Like, you know, like I bet they had, you know, like a beat sheet and that whole kind of thing. The songs and the quality of the play, I think they get away with a lot of it being subpar because the character is a shitty writer so they could kind of cheat a little bit if they had to if someone was like well because even i'm kind of like you know the one the one song i was like well this song isn't that great but rock me sexually jesus is fucking amazing uh, <laughs> so so yeah so that's where i sort of came down on on all on all of that i mean that that totally makes sense uh so john when we talk about the play as well and this idea of like this uh, theater teacher I know you did plays in high school. Did you have a theater teacher or director or whatever who was this enthusiastic? Any memories from the old school that come back to you? 
so my theater career started in, in middle school. I started doing, you know, projects with like the local community theater and, you know, that's where I discovered I liked it. And then I went to high school, but my high school, you know, it's very, in, it's very interesting because they were certainly a good school with a good budget for things, but they're primarily known for their athletics. Like if you are from Massachusetts and play sports, you are aware of Zavarian. You know, they are very much a very competitive school in that area. And theater, they just kind of did, you know, I don't mean to say that they didn't put some effort into the shows, but like I came to realize when I went to acting school and met people from the tri-state area in New York, just how many more productions their schools were putting on. All oh, the interesting. Time. We did a, a fall play in a spring musical, right? Which is not nothing, but kind of like compared to some schools, it's not a lot. You know, like those other schools also have like a short play festival and a, you know, like a this night and that kind of thing. So, so yeah, so my experience, I guess the reason I told you all that is I just straight up didn't make the play freshman and sophomore year. I didn't get cast. And so as much as I loved this thing, I was just shut out. Like I didn't get to do it. And I would be in the musicals in the spring, but I would, you know, play background characters. So my real experience with theater was when David Conley started directing the shows there. And David Conley was definitely a character, but more like a, a demanding hard ass than a like strange, <laughs> You know, he was not at all a soft, weird kind of, you know, milk toast, nevish kind of. The theater teachers in movies and TV, I feel like, are always portrayed like they're like very Ned Flanders types. You know, like, <laughs> like it, you know, they're like sometimes portrayed as homosexuals, but if they are, it's like a particular kind of, you know, stereotypical effeminate homosexual, right? Like, and David was not that. <laughs> David. <laughs> David was a tough guy. Uh, yeah, he was gay, but not at all, you know, somebody to be, like, mocked in the way that movies, especially from this period, do. Oh, for sure, for sure. Anyway, I loved that guy. He was awesome. But, like, and he was, like, somebody who held me to a standard that I'd never been held to before. And uh, it was really cool. That's sort of my uh, experience with with theater at, at the high school level like he you know it was kind of ridiculous in some ways because there were definitely parents who were like why is this guy so serious with my kids play you know like <laughs> they thought he was ridiculous right but i was like oh no this is the guy you know like this awesome. is the best thing ever you know so i i never thought he was ridiculous at all but he did like you know in fairness he booted a kid from the show during the run like we had gotten all the way to the run and, you know, a kid like against his explicit wishes, the kid uh, got up there and said a different line during one section that he thought was funny instead of the line. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And, and David was just like, nope, you're gone. Wow. Like, don't even. Did he do it. the rest of the play? That kid's part? Like Steve. Coogan oh, oh, yeah. No, he. <laughs> <laughs> he like allowed him to finish the show but oh, okay. then he was out the next day yeah i don't remember what they did i think they just cut all his stuff like he didn't have wow. a song so 
it like worked out. Yeah, it was a hard liner thing. So my uh, next question is, okay, so I wasn't involved in theater in that way. I did improv, but that's very different. Uh, right. So I see this depiction of theater kids a lot. I've, I've met people who call themselves theater kids. I was not a theater kid. But we have two, quote-unquote, the theater kids here. Uh, Rand, as I said, played by Skylar Aston, but also Epiphany. <laughs> it's like, she says some racist things in here. It's consciously racist, it's not, you know what I mean. But yeah. those are our two theater kids. Did you find... I know they're a stereotypical depiction of them, but what do you think of these two characters? Because I, I love kind of how they feel infiltrated by the non-theater kids and stuff. So, floor is yours, John. Sorry. Yeah, that's a little tough. Like, th- those kids existed, you know? <laughs> those kids existed, certainly. Like, there's... I've always had a kind of weird relationship with theater because... I do love it in many ways. I mean, I have a lot of enthusiasm for it and what it can be. But honestly, those characters come across as very musical theater actors. Um, And even then, it's a stereotype, right? I've met many musical theater actors that are nothing like that. But there's a certain, like, bright-eyed, nothing (laughs) bad could ever happen energy around musical theater that is very off-putting to people who consider themselves more grounded and especially like hard new england types (laughs) (laughs) i am very much (laughs) um, (laughs) see my disappointment with every movie we watch you know like (laughs) you know so yeah i don't know it was it was a mix of like that was kind of the mix right of the people that i was there with people who were singing along to the Rent soundtrack and, and knew every single word uh, right there with, you know, me and other people. <laughs> well, John, John, I'm happy you uh, said that because I know it's real. Like, people might pretend, but I've met musical theater actors and I've met the sort of brooding dramatic theater actors. And not everyone's the same. We get that. But <laughs> these stereotypes come from certain things that, I, again... Just I've met tangentially at parties that I'm sure, John, you've seen way more than I have. Yeah, I mean, I've been at brooding yeah. dramatic actors, so, you know, I can't make fun too much. <laughs> what I, what I kind of like about them is, like, they have an arc. Like, they grow and change, right? By the end, they're pretty different. Like, you know, one's dating the guy, the other guy that she hated at the beginning, and the other one's secure in his sexuality, apparently. That's what he says, right? Um, but... Yeah. But I also sort of saw, like, you know, we say they are sort of playing these stereotypes, but so are the other kids, right? So are, so is like Haywood, we come to find out. Like, it's this weird thing, like, I'm sure I did it in high school, too, where you just kind of lean into your clique or something, like, whatever you're really into. Like, I was a punk, so, like, I'm sure I put off a lot of people with, you know, just by looking like I was having a bad day every day or something like that. But like, it's this security blanket of behavior in a lot of ways. And yeah, like, I think every, I think every kid in this movie feels threatened by that in one way or another, you know, that like, they don't want to really confront their real self or they're afraid to be themselves. And like, that's a very kind of teenage high school thing to confront. And I liked how that was in this movie. Um, you know, throughout and, and like the way that they were dealing with not just racial stereotypes, but all kinds of stereotypes, even even Dana, you know, his name is Dana, which is it's a unisex name. But generally, you know, it's been thought of as a woman's name. So like it's he's he's constantly 
like emasculated during this movie right and so there's a lot of these like breaking down or unmixing social messages throughout in some ways or that's that just feels like maybe they're not completely successful in pulling it off but it feels like um something that they at least are trying to create some kind of dialogue about which you can't really say for a lot of other movies around this time so mike i know you acknowledge that there are you know identifying male danas it is a unisex name, Dana Carvey. And how about Dana Barros, all-star point guard, who, John, do you know what high school that Dana Barros went to? I don't. Did he go to Zavarian? He went to Zavarian High School, so there you go. Yeah. Former all-star of the NBA. Okay, I just want to work Dana Barros into the conversation. But, you did well. You did well. Because yeah, when you said, like, athletes, I had to look it up. Uh, the Hasselbecks went to your school too john i'm sure you knew that but very cool yeah i guess that sounds more familiar and just to be clear this is the one in westwood because there are a lot of places with the zavarian name in massachusetts yeah oh maybe not yes westwood massachusetts wow okay nice so there's a its own section on wikipedia for athletic tradition Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, look up like famous actors from Severian. How about you find zero? I am going to wait. Let's see. Oh, theater arts. It's been in existence since the late sixties. Uh, it's performed over eighty shows. Oh, oh, oh! A Tony Award playwright and creator of Forbidden Broadway, Gerald Asandrini. So there you go. Don't 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 uh diss your alma mater's acting prowess you have a tony there wow that's interesting i didn't know that i think the network needs a shakespeare podcast is what this is starting to feel like to me john you need to find someone out there who can carve out a little bit of time a month to really school us (laughs) i guess this is i'm sitting back here like wishing i could contribute to more of this because it's just like a world of I'm fascinated with that. I just have like very little, you know, I'm, I'm, I watch Birdman, right? Like I know the theater through movies and stuff and it's completely unrealistic, I bet. But like, yeah, it's interesting. No, I think Birdman is like, uh, it's only unrealistic in the parts that you know are unrealistic generally, you know, like, yeah, like obviously the like strange, you know, magical realism of that film. <laughs> yeah, but, hallucinations. But, you know, I think it's like very much trying to be like, the chaos of trying to put up a show and you know the like insularity and weirdness of the theater industry and like dealing with reviewers and critics and they absolutely can damn you with one bad review you know like i don't know i wonder if that's changing like that was very much the world you know for a very long time i feel like the internet maybe and and just the absolute insane um fragmentation of culture now Mm. this podcast is an example of it (laughs) absolutely like yet another place that you can go and and you know explore conversation and content that's just not through traditional methods you know so no i I don't think birdman is like you know this wildly insane you know totally off that like there are things in it that i think you know when you see it of course that's probably not real but I, think, so, I mean, yeah, like same with fame, you know, like no one's yeah. running out into the street. They're going to all get hit by cars. Like, come on. <laughs> um, but Mike, uh, I know you you kind of implied that you're taking a back seat. You're back in the front seat because I was going to ask you, you seem like you're the one who enjoyed this movie the most. Let's okay. talk about some of your favorite scenes. Let's run through. What, what's in your notes that you want to talk about? Um, 
Boy, uh, I mean, I think a lot of it is performance and setup and I don't think this is like technically the best movie. Okay. Like I'm not insane. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's not the third man over here or anything like that. Um, Great. (laughs) But it's not like it's Leonard part six, you know, it's Hamlet too. Like it's a, it's a fun, good time, but like, I could totally see like, it's, it's tonally confusing. It's, it's, very dark at times it's very light at others it's whimsical it's all this stuff so it's hard to pinpoint i even feel like a lot is cut out of this movie it seems like it might have suffered from like bad reviews and screenings and stuff because it seems like it starts late sometimes when i watch it to me uh and and john is totally right when it's just like you have to suspend your disbelief for so many things um that's why i feel like the elizabeth shoe scene is sort of like the litmus test where it's like all right like this is maybe the last time you have to do that, but it's the biggest leap of, you know, reality you're going to have to make that Elizabeth Shue is actually going to retire and like work in the middle of nowhere at a, at a menial job. Well, not me nurses. She's doing important work. Don't get me wrong, but it's just like, yeah. And there's just a lot of those kinds of little steps along the way that, that really pushes this, you know, everything from his sort of like testicular problems and he's got to wear the dresses and the nudity and it's just like all super weird and wacky and all over the place at times there's just like prat humor like when he when there's just one character that is like just constantly getting hit with stuff right she's kicked with a bucket she's like thrown with those um the the kill bill strings like the yeah. wire work like, <laughs> yeah by the guys who it's their first time ever <laughs> yeah it's all over the place but like that's another kind of thing I love about it is the charm of how it like, like the character of Dana and like the play itself. Like it barely, this movie is like barely holding itself together. Yeah. Um, and, and I kind of love that. I was going to say, I agree with you, Mike. I love that aspect of it because it's, because it's about a man holding his life barely together about a play yeah. that's being barely held together. So that that's why it kind of works with me. Yeah. I'd love movies about the process of filmmaking plays, radio, like what have you, like all that. I love the behind the scenes movies. And I feel like this is a really honest and realistic, if not exaggerated portrayal of the creative process. You know, like that scene, Brian, is not really that funny. You know, if if you've ever tried to do something like that, like it is very on point and you know, this character reveals very intimate, dark things about himself to these kids who are basically strangers. And I don't know, I just really grew to like these characters a lot. Um, well, maybe not Catherine Keener's character, uh, but, um, but like the rest of them for sure. And and it just had like that great spirit behind it. So it's like, it's hard for me to kind of just like, unless you want to talk about a specific scene, I feel weird just sort of like jumping you know, to say like, this is my favorite scene or that's my favorite scene. I mean, one scene that, one scene that definitely sticks out and when he is when he goes to talk to Haywood's parents and he finds out his real name. We're going to your house now. No, 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 we can't do that. It's not a good idea. My father tried to stand in the way of my dreams too. He's dead now, but you could say like Hamlet's ghost, I'm still haunted by him because he caused me so much pain, which is why I tried to become an actor, which caused me so much pain. (laughs) 
you can't let your ethnic narrow-mindedness stop your son from thriving in our culture. I have to take exception to that characterization. Heywood's a bad boy. He's a gangbanger, a deadbeat. But he also has a gift. Who is Haywood? Your son, Haywood Jablomi. Oh, I just got that. Octavio doesn't belong to a gang. He's got a 3.9 and an early acceptance to Brown. He does? Yes, our concerns about the play are of a different nature. If it's the sex and violence, I can totally tone that down. No, we're fine with those. Then what is it? We merely express our absolute distaste for a sequel to what is arguably the greatest play in the English language. Not to mention the quality of the writing, which is uh, quite low. <laughs> well, no offense, but uh, what the hockey puck do you know? Well, I've uh, published nine novels. I have a PhD in literature. My wife is a painter. She currently has an exhibit at the Guggenheim in Bilbao. Ah, uh, okay. Then, help me fix my play. I'm trying to save drama. You have Hamlet using a time machine to stop Gertrude from drinking the poison, to stop Ophelia from drowning. You're taking the tragedy out of the tragedy. I just wondered why in Hamlet 1, everybody has to die. It's such a downer. I mean, if Hamlet had had just a little bit of therapy, he could have turned everything around. Everybody deserves a second chance. Yes, well, we'll, um, we'll let Octavio make up his own mind. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Let me show you the way out. Uh, I, I, can we talk more? I would love to get your notes. I would do anything. I, I do chores. I, I clean your rain gutters. I'm afraid we don't have rain gutters. You're a liar. Everybody has rain gutters. Yes, Mike, I absolutely loved that scene, too. That was a scene I really was on board with the film. <laughs> and, you know, like, his dad is, is chastising uh, Dana about, like, all of the, you know, problems like not just like structural but like morally and all this kind of thing and he's like well who are you to say this and he explains like i've written nine books i'm a doctor like all this <laughs> stuff. And, and he gets this look on his face and he goes can you help me fix my play and it's like that that is you know those are those moments where i'm like oh i'm in love with this guy i want him to succeed so hard yeah, like they I drag really him like down so far he's he's at such a rock bottom for every for the whole thing that like I just end up like relating to him and have like all this empathy. So it's such a relief to see like the end of this movie yeah. when he succeeds. No, that scene yeah. is really like awesome. Just the fact that also he's making racial stereotypes. He and I think naturally the viewer is not maybe making those stereotypes, but thinking like maybe the movie is right. Like that. Oh, he comes from a rough background. That's why he's going there. But like they're in this beautiful home. Parents are super okay. successful, and their objection is not. Oh, like he's like, oh, this, I forget. He says something along the lines of the machismo of your parents are, are, yeah. not, are not going to allow you to be in this play, but it's really because the play sucks. <laughs> uh, and, and you're right. You're so right, Mike. The look in his eye when the dad says that he's a writer and that he's successful is not like, oh, well, you proved me wrong. It's exactly what you said. It's like, he says, can you help me with this? Oh, this is an opportunity here. I love that part. Yeah, that is funny as well. I, I enjoyed that as well. Especially after the film, honestly, like, I began to feel, maybe I'm oversensitive to these things. I really don't know. But I, I began to feel like, wow, this movie really, like, is 
from a different time and it's only 2008 like you know with the just the way that they casually made like such racist comments you know and and it was clearly like the characters were meant to be wrong but somehow it like wasn't really set up that they were wrong you know like it was a little uncomfortable you know mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. to have them uh sort of subvert expectations that way i i just that was nice you know i i like enjoyed it partially because i was relieved that i wasn't about to watch a scene that was gonna feel really uncomfortable in its portrayal of you know of latinx people for sure, for sure. You're so right, John, in, in that respect. I was a little nervous before that, too, because 2008 is so f- far removed from today yeah. for so many reasons. Like, one, they don't make comedies like this anymore. They hardly do. They're v- very rarely farce comedies. And if there are comedies, they're always... And I'm not saying it's a negative thing, FYI. But there are a lot of comedies that will make trying to make a statement here or there. Um, and I suppose this is, but not in, like, a real high level or anything. But some of the comedies I really enjoyed in this in the decade that we're talking about now, they do have their cringy moments when it comes to whether it be race relations or gender stuff, you know what I mean? Where it's like, it mm-hmm. can be uncomfortable to watch today. You kind of have to watch in the lens of that time. But... This scene really helped me be like, oh, okay, they they understand what they're doing here. Because you also watch comedies mm-hmm. of the day that, like, yeah, they're edgy with race stuff, but it still feels like, for example, like the Latin people in this movie, like, I was afraid they weren't going to be in on the joke that's happening here. But they largely are, and also doesn't, like, abandon everything culturally I liked where we ended up, like physically and emotionally. I liked how we were, how the principal sort of kicks them out of the school just to, you know, bounce back a little. I love when they're practicing and the volleyball team's there and we're seeing the uh, ecosystem that is a high school. But when they're forced to go to that kind of rave space, I think the movie uh, went to a different level. Like the industrial space paired with the absurdity of what the play ends up being helped put me in the crazy mode I had to be to watch this play. I think it was better staged there than the high school auditorium, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, 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 it you know what it reminded me of actually, this gives me a great opportunity to bring this up. I've been wanting to is Synecdoche, New York. Ooh, Catherine oh, Keener. Yeah. Same, uh, yeah. Around the same time, right? A couple of years I don't know when it's connecting. Also, Brian, your boy. Phil Zimmer Hoffman, of course. So sorry, John, continue. Are you familiar with... uh... (laughs) Your friend Wit was on our episode. Was I also on that episode with him? Or was that the one you did by himself? We did that one by himself. You you did a twister with Wit. That's right, of course. Yeah, obviously. We had to do that together. Yeah, so that... I don't... Just that same sense of, you know, the weird man given this project and the project grows wildly out of control and strange Mm. and like eventually goes to a kind of warehouse space and you know we never fully see the project right like it's never totally clear what the project is we just kind of see snippets of it but obviously that movie is is hilarious at times but not silly like this one is good comp the tone is totally different well it's just something that i don't remember when that started but during the movie, I was very aware of that exact thing as like weirder and weirder things started to happen. And that similar thing that, that I think 
we were talking about earlier about the way that the like messiness of the movie is, I totally agree a little more acceptable because it's like about being a mess because the you know, it's like mm -hmm. writing a play that's the mess. His own life is a mess. And there's a lot of like Kaufman-esque work, you know, influencing back into the reality, but the reality is also the work. Yeah. I feel like adaptation also has that. So yeah, I don't know, just just something there. But yeah, I had actually forgotten that Catherine Keener is also in that, so that's a good call. I really, uh, I really dig that observation about like the environment in which you are performing becomes part of the performance. You know, I would imagine you know like performing Dracula in a castle or Midsummer's in the actual woods, or like it reminded me of like when people watch Jaws in a lake. I thought that was cool. And it did definitely like they utilized the entire space, which is something they probably couldn't have done if they were doing this at the school and rigging up all the effects and stuff was really cool. And you're right, Brian, like there's just some kind of driver energy in that second half where it just feels like none of that was really messed with. And none of that needed to be reworked. It was all just sort of like, how do we get here in the cleanest way? for the audience to understand. Like I could only, like I really do speculate on like many dropped sort of scenes or things like that or uh, plot threads and other things. Mike, can you go back? I was very interested in that actually. You said this earlier and I wanted to get back to it, but you know, the conversation went on. You said that you felt like the movie started late. Yeah, yeah, like that and on the way it has like the act, like the different act breaks and things. Like I don't exactly know how to explain it uh, it's just sort of a feeling I have, and I get this from time to time watching a movie where you could just tell it, it, it's been over tampered with in a way. Like, I honestly feel like there might have been scenes preparing for the Aaron Brockovich stuff, but they decided to start with the commercials. It feels like maybe there was more stuff at home. I actually definitely feel like there was more Catherine Keener stuff. And it just seems like they were like, get to the get to it a little quicker. Like you got to get to the idea that like you have a class 12, 12 times the size of normal now. And like, we really just really got to get to that. If you watch, I know for a fact they did that on mall rats that like, if you watch mall rats, it kind of, it's actually, they cut the entire first reel of that movie and it's on like the special edition. And there's a whole sequence at the high school and they end up just referencing it like towards the beginning of the movie and talking about it. Um, but I don't know. I just got that kind of feeling that something was maybe missing or it's not exactly like the director's cut. I could be totally wrong and it doesn't necessarily bother me, but I guess I just wish there was more of this movie deep down inside that. I, I know there's one or two deleted scenes, but yeah, I just can't confirm any of that. Yeah, no, I absolutely, that's, I mean, that's why I wanted to hear you talk more about it because that, that is what I was saying to some degree as well, trying to express was that, it's not, you know, it's not just that there are leaps of logic, but it was more that, right? That there's not, it's not so many ridiculous things. Like there's silly things, but it's a comedy. You know, that's not the issue. It's, it's not like, oh, I didn't believe the parts that were funny. You know, <laughs> it's much more that sense that you were talking about. That's like more what I wanted to say was that it just felt really rushed. I was like, why isn't, you know... Yeah everything's just developing so fast. There's no weight to anything. And I'm like, okay, so now this happens. And, you know, I read this, I read this book about theater analysis, which, you know, conveniently enough used Hamlet as it's like, it's like, we're going to do this entire book 
you know, and the play we're going to use is Hamlet. But the, the book is called Backwards and Forwards, and it was talking about that the the best way to understand a play, you know, if you're looking to direct it, for example, or an actor trying to get a better sense of the structure of the thing, is to read it backwards. Not the first time, right? That's not like some <laughs> new way. But to, but to look at it as a series of events that are caused, right? How does every event get caused by the event before it, right? So that like looking at it backwards gives you this really clear sense of, oh, and this happens because this thing needed to happen first. You know, and like you develop a sense of what needed to happen in order for us to get here. Right. And that's sort of how I feel is like that's missing. Like if you were to look at it backwards, you'd be like, yeah, there isn't there's not a causal link between a lot of the setup circumstances in the movie. You know, they're just sort of all things that happen, which leads to the viewer feeling you're not on a ride. Right. Like the whole idea of telling a story is you want to take the audience on a ride. You want to be like, get in the back seat. Don't I've got it. Right. Like we're going someplace fun. And when you just kind of drive to random places. It's like you're the driver who takes a wrong turn on somebody's way home, right? Like they, they immediately get anxious, you know, and are, and feel disoriented. Um, and that's, yeah, I don't know. I got a better handle on that from hearing what Mike said. Mm, yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, Cause I think we do end up at a fun destination, but yes, <laughs> but it is a little choppy towards the beginning. Um, So uh, John, you reminded me of a couple things while saying that, and one of them is the whole Catherine Keener, David Arquette, uh, she trying to get pregnant angle here. Um, what do you guys think of that? I mean, first reaction, Catherine Keener like plays an awful lot of unpleasant women. She does it really well. <laughs> <laughs> she does. Yeah, so, you know, I'm thinking of, like, Get Out. Um, she's the villain in The Incredibles 2. This movie, uh, there's at least one more that I'm not coming up with right now. It's funny because my first encounter with her is 40-year-old virgin, and I like had no idea at the time that she was actually like much more often playing kind of villains <laughs> like, in a lot of films. But you're right, like in, in the Kaufman stuff, like being John Malkovich uh, sort of plays that as well. Not really Capote, but uh, what's uh, in the... Oh, Hamlet too, and Schenectady is the exact same year. That's crazy. Sorry. Yeah, Capote, tangent. she's more sympathetic again, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, Harper Lee there. She's in her fucking wheelhouse in, in this decade, isn't she? Like, she's just killing yeah. it, though. Yeah, tons of work. Uh, you know, I never believed their relationship, which I guess we're not supposed to, but it seemed pretty clear. They didn't seem to have any real chemistry from the very beginning, and... The thing with Gary was like very clear. I was like, she's going to end up sleeping with Gary. Like it just, yeah, you know, something, yeah. about, something about her playing up her annoyance with him, him being like a young guy, you know, like obviously Dana being such a loser. It, it felt very, very. So I don't know if that's a failure, you know, like, is that a criticism? I just think generally speaking, like right from the beginning, that was part of also what was weird and jarring was feeling like I was supposed to be watching the scene of them like you know getting along and being like yeah this already feels like this marriage is like completely done you know like I, I don't know it was just a sense I had yeah it wasn't really the performances it was just the 
I guess on a script level, sometimes I feel like movies don't know if they're gonna what they're going to be until they shoot them, and this was leaning in more of like that uh, that dramedy lane or even like the Charlie Kaufman sort of lane, and not as farcical as we get towards the ending. Like mm-hmm. when she announces, at least to me, when she announces that the baby is David Arquette, it's like okay, we knew that. Not actually David Arquette's. And when she, like, leaves him, it wasn't that impactful or crazy to me because it's what you said, John. Like, off the bat, you know what's going on here. Um, what about you, Mike? Did you like this side angle? Or I liked the concept. I think the execution of this is the clunkiest parts of the movie. Um, but I, I like what they were trying to go for because... He is so optimistic and such so upbeat against so many odds. I mean, he ends up succumbing to his alcoholism at one point, but you could, you know, it's when he leaves her and you can understand, you know, I get that. It also led me to think like to start sort of crafting his backstory. I was like, how did they end up together? And it's like, well, he was actually pretty successful at one point and probably making good money and, they were doing all right and now you know they need a roommate and they've moved to tucson and he has to teach so they've really fallen on hard times and (laughs) i don't know i think the movie wants to use their relationship as a reminder to be like as well as you know not that things are going great at school but as good as things are going with like getting through to the kids and and you know that's like the fun and games of the movie and everything like there's always this sort of realness to ground the rest of it is like, well, this is sort of what he's ignoring at home. This is what he's dealing with at home. This is the stuff he's losing. This is uh, all the things that, you know, maybe should be important to him, but Aaron is like starting a family, getting a child, you know, making real money and like supporting somebody, all that, but he's still like living in sort of fantasy land, you know? So I don't think the movie did a great job of balancing those two tones but I think that might be the intention with the home life stuff. And then the stuff with Gary is just very off because of that. Like, I think because maybe there's not enough of, of this or maybe even the fact that it, maybe they should have done something else with this. I don't know. But yeah, like, like I said, like, I like the, I like what they were going for. And now as far as what's actually here, like, I do think that the Gary thing is like just so stupid. It's funny. Like, that's where that ends up to me is like to get the most boring roommate on the planet again is like another sort of trope, I suppose, in like comedies and things. But like the way she just fucking comes down on him so hard all the time, like another brilliant observation from Gary, you know, <laughs> and it's like, uh, our border, like just really just shoveling the shit on him and everything. And like, you know, Dana too, you know, and all that stuff about their business about getting pregnant and, and everything. But yeah, so not, not exactly, you know, the, the best or most successful parts of the movie, but I like what they were going for. Yeah. I'm with you with that too. I, I don't think that in a year or whatever, when I'm thinking about this movie, when it's not fresh on the mind, these are the parts that I'll gravitate to. But there were some nuggets here. Another uh, plot line that I wanted to just ask you guys about was the appearance of Amy Poehler as that ACLU lawyer and 
what goes on here. I was trying to look up her IMDb and like what she what was happening here. She was clearly very famous at this point. It wasn't just like an early role or anything. Um, felt very cameo-ish. It felt like something where they wanted to be like, oh my god, it's Amy Poehler. That's cool. As she is a name, what do you guys think of this, uh, her role here? She does a great job. <laughs> um, I agree. You know, generally, generally happy to see Amy Poehler. She was my runner-up for somebody you could see more of in the movie as I was watching, but then she did come back and do a fair amount, so I, I uh, had to change. But I, you know, that's that's secret for now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I thought thought she did a great job. I thought it was a fun character, very silly. Uh, I liked when he said it's a good play, and she said it's irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mr. Mirajka? Who? Oh, I, Mar- it's Marjzis, yes. Cricket Feldstein, American Civil Liberties Union. We spoke on the phone. The ACLU. Oh, I thought you were a talent agent like UTA or CAA, but totally not disappointed. If you're wondering about the Feldstein, I married a Jew. It's my understanding that there are forces trying to stop you from performing Hamlet too. You received a cease and desist order in regards to this performance? Yes. I think we have a First Amendment case on our hands, Mr. Maraska. It's Marjson's. You really think so? No one is shutting down this play. The Justice Department and the so-called Supreme Court can suck my balls. But what do they have to do with this? My balls? No, the other thing. I'm a short blonde chick, but I play to the death. I pick cases that I can win because I want to win big. Cases with controversy and headlines and steaming piles of flying left and right, mostly left. How's that sound? Fine. Are you on my side? Yes. Great, let's do it. Okay, then. Do I need to sign anything? No, don't sign anything. I think the play's gonna be really good. It's irrelevant. Okay. I feel like I set that up that I disliked it. If you're going to have that construct, you better stick the landing. And she's all in here. She doesn't look like she's mailing it in or anything like that. Mm -hmm. She she does a great job. And you're so right, John. Her coming back later and, like, I love her outside during the performance, like, uh, uh, with the Spanish Spanish language interview. And she has no idea what they're saying. But she's kind of just ready for a response. Yeah, I think she she did a really great job. I would have liked to see a little bit more of her, but it, it, mm-hmm. it was a pretty good amount. Yeah, I think maybe they could have introduced her a little earlier, maybe. Like, it would have been a funny scene if they sought her out and she said no, and then all the controversy started and she came back and was like, hey, like, I'm on board or whatever. But I love Amy Poehler. And, like, she's committed in everything. Like, I don't think I've ever seen her not put in, like, 110%. I remember her as Andy's sister on Late Night with Conan O'Brien growing up in high school. Like... Uh, I think it was a smart move because to cast someone of her caliber and and like like you said, Brian, is sort of a glorified cameo in a way because this character comes in so late to the movie and it's such a small role that you kind of and it's pretty important at this point, you know, like this character kind of needs to be there to a degree. So you need somebody who can come in and kind of steal steal the scene or two. You know, and you mentioned Will Ferrell earlier. I think that would have been funny as well if, like, Will Ferrell came in and doing his, like, you know, kind of clueless uh, law enforcement guy or whatever, something like that. But, yeah, I was really glad to see her here, too. All right. A couple other questions I have for you guys. The final play 
Any thoughts on that? Uh, for me, I love the uh, time machine they built out of metal. I thought that was really fun. I had an issue with the fact that I, I, it's a logistical issue. I really shouldn't care at this point. Uh, Skylar Aston's character returns like halfway through the play, and he's like, "Can I, you know, can I rejoin the play? How do you rejoin a play halfway through? Did he fire the actor that replaced him, or logistics? I didn't understand there, but well, I think that maybe that character hadn't shown up yet in the play. He was only a he was he wasn't oh. in the first act. Oh, you might be right about that. You might have saved that for me. Like I like that. I love that Jesus is involved here because it also gets like the religious opposition and the fact that this play becomes popular because of the opposition, because of the protesting. We see that in real life. Involving Jesus and the story of Jesus in it is, uh, I was going to say almost as sacrilege, but that feels sacrilege, but I'll say it, almost as sacrilege as bastardizing Hamlet, right? So So it almost fits that these two characters would be, and I love how... The line that's drawn is that these two characters have daddy issues. <laughs> you mentioned with like Nat Faxon in the chair. Like mm-hmm. we're totally past the line of absurdity at this point. But it is fun. Um any other things in the play that really stuck out at you? I really loved for some reason, I really loved the incorporation of Jesus into the story for reasons. Um, like it's is it tasteless? Sure, probably, but you know, I don't really cater to like sacrilege and things like that necessarily like it's a movie it's pretend it's a story you know um it's not smearing christ right like uh he's a fictional character in a lot of people's minds so like you know and you could take real historical characters and do what you want with them i don't mind like i don't think he's the issue with the play you know it's just kind of like i think part of it plays more I don't know, like watching it this time, it it felt as like, oh, isn't this shocking, you know, for the sake of shock value. And I was a little disappointed about that this time, to be quite honest with you, you know, like because every other time I was like laughing hysterically or, or buying into it all or like trying to find the parallels between Hamlet and Jesus, you know, and all that kind of thing. But I don't know. I, I end up going with it anyway. It's just, I wish there was actually more historical characters thrown in the mix, to be honest. And like, who came up with, where did they get the time machine? And, you know, but now we're getting back to like, how much of this play did they actually write? Who knows? So, but other than that, I loved, I loved the, uh, the, the flying the lightsaber fight. I thought that was a great addition to Hamlet. Yep. I enjoyed that as well. Well, John, as the theater expert on High School Slumber Party, what did you think of the aspects of the performance that we got to see? They were well executed. You know, it's always like kind of funny, like that these kids definitely clearly like we're meant to think these kids came together and like rehearsed the hell out of it. And really, you know, because their execution is like professional level. And uh, yeah, I don't know. The, The musical numbers are... Like, Rock Me Sexy Jesus is great. The other ones are, like, sometimes we, we had no idea they were coming, and so they're a little bit, like, jarring, you know, to just be like, wait, what, what is happening? But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's just kind of a ridiculous vibe. <laughs> but it does, it does feel like a part of the movie where it, it really, like, picks up steam in a great way. You know, it's like, it really finds its footing. And I, I think something that we maybe didn't say explicitly but it feels like we've talked around the whole evening is it feels like a movie with some great 
set pieces and things that they really wanted to get to and like a lot of problems that they had to solve in order to do that <laughs> like yeah that's fair actually I, yeah that's a good way of putting it i think I could you could describe a lot of movies that way, John. So thank you for those words. I'm gonna yeah, well, tri attribute them to you in the future, but probably use that often. <laughs> well, thank you. But I will say, you know, it's funny because I actually feel I do think sure, right? Not the only movie I've ever seen that had that problem. But it also feels to me like, like actually, you know what? Off the top of my head, I would even say that like the most recent Star Wars movie, meaning like mm. in the like setting. You know what I mean? Not I have no idea what the most recent like movie with the star wars universe no no i know what you mean the whatever sorry but um yeah whoever cares what that title was that movie sucked <laughs> but that movie has a similar problem where they're like oh, it was palpatine the whole time you know and like they do some cool stuff in that movie absolutely but it's that same thing of like needing to do a lot of work to to like justify it but what i see i feel like even more often is people who just at least at the amateur level is you see things that have like a great beginning but have no idea how to end you know like they they're like i have this wonderful premise but then like i you know i i couldn't mm -hmm. figure out what to say with it I mean, and that's the thing you gotta wow them in the end right sometimes yeah. they say that's all you need is that ending and then you could just and then maybe that's what was happening with this movie is like it's not so much about the journey it's the destination <laughs> yeah well you leave you certainly do i think leave the movie having more fun than you were at the beginning and like yeah, on some level, that's what you're going to remember. That's what you're going to tell your friends about, you know. Yeah, like the best thing in writing you can do is everything's amazing, right? Like front, back, middle. That's the best thing you can do. The second best thing you can do is have a good beginning and have a good end and have whatever in the middle, right? Not whatever, but you know. Yeah. Like to survive, the bare minimum you need is a good ending. Yeah, as long as, as, long as it's not, you know... I, this is like getting very picky, but as long as it's not so terrible that people don't stick around. Fair, fair. Yes, fair. You know, that's the only thing. I've certainly, not many, because I think it's rude, but I have left a couple of shows. Well, uh, yeah, like once you get to like a Broadway level, I think it's rare that people leave. But you're right. Like if it's like a student workshop or something, or well, I guess if it's not like 10 people in there, because that's also awkward to leave. But you're so right, John, that we get so many things that have like strong beginnings that don't know where to go. And that's probably the most disappointing of all the like writing scenarios you can get to. Yeah. That's uh, pretty much the only play I ever wrote in my life had that exact problem. <laughs> you know, never tried very hard to get it produced or anything because I knew I could tell, you know, I was like, I think that this play starts great and I got no idea what to do with it. Oh man, that's always tough. But hey, I have hope for that play. Let's crowdfund it. Listeners, give John money. Let him finish. No, 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 no. I'll, I'll tell you when it's worth doing. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. One more thing I wanted to ask about before we get to our awards and questions. I guess this is a question too, but it's not our regular scheduled question. Um, so Steve Coogan, I don't know if you guys were aware, also is the narrator of the film. Yeah, I thought it was Jeremy yeah. Irons, and then at the end he fucking <laughs> fooled me. Oh, yeah. No, I, I could tell. I don't know. I, well, that's I, good. I was like... Oh. That's Coogan doing his, because I know that he has that in him, you know, like he, I know that, that Coogan is like that, that he's still a, he's still a goddamn British actor with, you know, actually I'm curious what Coogan's acting education is. Let me see. No, especially John, like the proportion of British actors in all of 
acting is crazy high proportion of the population because they do have pretty traditional backgrounds and stuff. I mean, I don't know about him. I mean, you're a parent. Two out of three Spider-Man might be British. Yeah, two out of three Spider-Man. Did you find out where he went to school or no? Yeah, he, he tried five failed applications to various drama schools and then uh, went to the Manchester Polytechnic School of Drama, which is definitely... It's not the old Vic. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know it, though. That's all that means. Like, it, you know... Yeah. Um, there's plenty of... Uh... Oh, yeah, Richard Griffiths went there. Yeah, so he went to a legitimate drama school. Oh, okay, never mind. Anthony Scher. Yeah, 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 this place is for real. There's a bunch of famous classical people who went there. So my point is is accurate. Like, he... You know, he may play a buffoon, but, like, he's got a real education in the classics. So, he, you know, he's got all that voice and speech work. He can he can do that VO for the beginning. Awesome. So, like, yeah, that totally makes sense. But uh, I saw some criticisms of his accent work in the film when I was reading criticisms. Did you guys feel that way? or No, I didn't really notice it, but I don't know. Like, I wasn't, yeah. It, I, I mean, I noticed that he had an American accent. I didn't sit there and think about how fake it sounded, except that I know what Steve Coogan normally sounds like. But like, yeah, I thought it was good. It didn't bother me at all. You know, I mean, yeah, no, I agree. It didn't bother me either. So I was just curious. Knowing that he's like, you know, Steve Coogan and all that, and like <laughs> he's got a really thick accent when he, well, at least when Is he that... does. <laughs> um, Mike, your accent work, I'm not too thrilled with. What do you mean right now? Yes, of course. I'm kidding. <laughs> My Jersey, my Jersey accent so thick. So sorry about that. I didn't share that sentiment. So I think we're all in agreement there. So let's just get to our questions. First question we ask every week is, who was this movie made for? Mike, why don't you go first? Um, who was this movie made for? Um, yeah, not not sure. I guess fans of. Shakespeare, fans of theater, fans of movies of teachers turning their kids around and the teachers also learning from their kids. There's kind of a Dead Poet Society thing happening here. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, I think that's part of the problem is like, who is the, there is no audience for this, right? Like it's a movie that is just like a bunch of funny people put this together threw it out into the world to see if it sticks and it, apparently it didn't it stuck to me so that's all i'm really happy about i feel like it kind of has a vibe of like partially i feel like if you like the films of jared hess you might enjoy this this movie too uh, he's made like napoleon dynamite and nacho libre and gentleman broncos um but yeah, it's that's a tough one. I'd like to hear who John, because I mean, John, I mean, do you think that this was marketed towards you? Like a guy who's a serious actor, you know, was in theater, teaches like the whole nine yards, as we said very early on in the show, like all the boxes it checks. I mean, I definitely think that that it was it's marketed to like men ages like 15 to you know, 45 or whatever. That's like the demographic. I just want to take a second and, and just love the hell out of the, the like flexibility of the sentence. This movie has no audience because <laughs> this movie, but like that exact sentence could have been such a hard pan. And I really <laughs> like it. <laughs> this movie has no audience. <laughs> I, yeah, that, I don't, that's what it feels like to me. Like, um, 
you know, it's uh, young people, right? It doesn't it doesn't have to be exclusively men. I shouldn't say it's not like your um, it's not like stripes or or old school, right? Like Ooh, something yeah. that that yeah, right. That's a movie that's very much marketed to that age group and male. I think probably I should say that age group and of any gender. That that's what feels like the right audience for it. Um, theater people for sure. Like yeah, the the frustrated actor thing is real people who try to make things you know there's a lot of like real frustration even as it presents it in a ridiculous way yeah that's interesting no i i agree with that and i agree with a little bit of what you said mike too that there might have been an intended audience but it clearly failed to capture whoever that was because the movie lost money and kind of fell into obscurity recently it's been coming back i've seen a lot more people talking about it at least in the last year maybe only because i became aware of it but I've seen some of those cult classic articles come out, so maybe we'll see more of this movie going forward. All right, most likely to succeed, who won the movie? And this is for which character won the movie, not which actor. So, John, why don't you go first on this one? Which character do you think comes out of this movie more on top than any other character? Because, by the way, we didn't mention it. I mean, we alluded to it, but we didn't mention it. The play ends up on Broadway with the original cast. He turns, I think, what Jeremy Irons down for the role that he plays and stuff. And and Hunky Dory actually shot on the street of New York there. So we end with the biggest success you could ever pretty much get if you write a play. So that's where we end. But what character comes out on top? I mean, it's really hard not to say Steve Coogan, yeah. not to say Dana um, Marsh. Um, <laughs> it's funny, by the way, I want to just say, because the Z... It's got to be like German because the Z in German is pronounced like a TZ, right? <laughs> so I think that's what's going on with his name is that at the end, right, you have that. <laughs> yeah, um, I, again, I just love the pronunciation thing. Also, there's one part where he says like, you know, uh, he talks about his upbringing in Manitoba and becoming an actor. So love that little uh, Canadian connection. But uh, sorry, John, continue. Yeah. No, just, yeah, I mean, he gets, he gets uh, a new girlfriend who tongue kisses him on the street. Kind of weird. Um, but, uh, you know, his play is successful. Like he, you know, how, how is he not won the movie? Hard to argue with that. How, how about you, Mike? Yeah, I, I would agree. I, you know, I'd say if there was a second one, maybe Haywood, I don't know. Like, <laughs> um, he seems like he's, he was the lead of the play. He seems like uh, a good actor. Like maybe he could actually be one of the kids in this to like do it professionally forever. I don't know. And we never got a Hamlet three. So I don't, <laughs> or what would be next? Like, you know, I don't think he would touch Romeo and Juliet, but like who, what Shakespeare play would you guys like to see sequelized by this character? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet too. Another one where uh, a lot of people die. Yeah. John, that, that's a good question for you. There are obviously sequels to Shakespeare plays that Shakespeare wrote himself, but one that does not have a sequel if theoretically someone were to go to you, John, and say, I am writing a sequel to a Shakespeare play, I'm sure you would say, God, no. But if there was one that you could even envision that for, what would it be? Um, there's a, man, there's like a cheap answer, which is Love's Labor's Lost, because Love's Labor's Lost is a play that literally ends where all the lovers are about to get together and then... The princess, it's like a, a very strange comedy, right? It's definitely a comedy, very silly show. But at the very end, the the main, the lead female character, the princess, her father dies. And like all of the, her attending ladies and she need to go home. 
you know, and so it's like a complete, hence the name, Love's Labor's Lost, right? That play could certainly have a sequel. Like, it's thought that maybe it did have a sequel that was, Ooh. you know, has never been recovered. So that that's one that you could actually write that feels like, you know, it might actually work um, because there's space left open for a sequel. Yeah. But in terms of something that I would just want to be in that world again, that's a good question. Um, everybody's dead at the end of the tragedies generally, so it's really tough um, to do. <laughs> I've got a good title, but I don't know if it'd be a good movie, but Much Ado 2. Much, yeah. much to do. <laughs> much to do. <laughs> Even more to do. Yeah. 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 Maybe the shrew can get untamed somehow and we have to Ooh. we have to retame her. That's so bad. I don't know. I'm trying to think. Shrew too. I'm just trying to picture posters. <laughs> so bad. So Love's Labors One, is that what the sequel would be? Yeah, that's like theoretically the one that Wait. So Love's Labor's Lost Two, Love's Labor One. Or Yeah, Love's Labor. Yeah, sure. How about Love's yeah. Labor's Lost in New York? Ooh. How about that? <laughs> I don't know. I think we're cooking something here. <laughs> yeah. Wow. We're cooking with Shakespeare. All right. Uh Wooderson Award, and this is of course named after Matthew McConaughey's character in Dazed and Confused, originally had, you know, one small scene in the movie uh link later liked him so much he expanded his role long story short dude wins an oscar has a whole career out of it so is there a character in this film if you were the director or writer or whoever that you would like to see more of a character's role that you would like expanded uh mike why don't you go first on this one uh, probably the um, mm, well as much as i want to say like more elizabeth shoe uh, I think I think the little critic kid, like I would Loved like him. to have seen him maybe during the finale one more time or like at the play or something like checking with him one more time. You know, Dana run up to him being like, how's it going? And, and the kid being like, go back and finish the play. <laughs> <laughs> something. I don't know. I, that kid comes to mind a lot because like, yeah, that that was hilarious. Theater critic kid. OK, John, who did you say? The I thought about this. The liquor store owner. Oh, oh. <laughs> That's, I mean, I was just thinking about like the smallest appearance in the film, <laughs> like a very nice deadpan performance. You know, I think he does a solid job. Yeah, he, yeah, that's a good one. He was great. I would have said Nat Faxon as the copy guy. I love that scene with the colors where they decide, or he does, yeah. who decides on orange. Yeah, I agree. But we get we get him in towards the end anyway. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, it's harder to say that you could honestly, like, need that much more. (laughs) I think he's in the right amount. I think he nails it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, opposite question, sort of. Long Duck Dong Award. Uh, Of course, it's named after Long Duck Dong and 16 Candles. Now, originally, this award is for anything that you felt like maybe too racially insensitive today that it's a mission to make the film better. But if you don't feel like there's anything in the movie that's that way, if there's just any character who you would omit from the film, who would it be? John? Ugh, I do, I'm looking through if I had an answer to this one. I don't know that I had an answer to this one. I'm sorry. I was having trouble with this one. There's a lot of like uncomfortable race stuff, and I think they tackle it well to an extent. But I could see toning that down a little bit. Like I don't need... 
I don't need that girl uh, Epiphany actually saying yeah. racial slurs. No, no, not that I don't need her in the movie. Sorry, I don't need her actually like throwing racial slurs around. No, I think that's the one for me. I think you got it. I think that she never does anything that is like funny enough to justify the stuff that's kind of weird. Ah, fair enough. Fair enough. You know, like it's not. I'm not trying to pick on the person. I think this the part's written weird and it's tough. You know, even her counterpart, it like gets more to do. That's funny. Her jokes are, yeah, like often like, isn't it funny how this young white girl is saying this awful stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, when she's so innocent. And I'm like, that's exactly what people do. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that funny. Like, I don't know why that's literally exactly it. (laughs) You're not wrong. (laughs) Uh, How about you, Mike? Anyone you would eliminate? Um... No, I mean, it's hard to say. Like, I'm in, the, I'm in the same train of thought because, like, I feel like part of the movie's point is how offensive it is. And, like, if you think it's kind of like, oh, you think, like, some people, it's kind of like what people feel is offensive, right? Like, they haven't even seen the play. And, you know, we're dealing with this shit now still, like, banning plays and books and all this crap. But, like, so, like, it's hard to say, like, where and how much I'd tone down like the insensitivity because i feel like that's part of the message but i definitely what you guys were talking about that one character like they really kind of laid it on a little either laid it on too thick or she just didn't perform it with enough sort of finesse that it feels off-putting instead of ignorant right or something like that you know she seems to mean it instead of not really know what she's saying which i feel like the character is more like because it's a teenager i don't know that kind of thing but yeah i think i'm i'm in i'm in that same boat y'all all right cameron fry award um so this is a movie about a teacher more than it is about the kids the kids do feature well but um this award is of course for anyone who looked too old or felt a little too old to be a high schooler anyone here didn't really fit that teen mold um yeah the guy maybe the guy uh what is his name arnie yeah i think his i think the actor's name is arnie pantoja he plays the uh, plays the kid who who like hooks them up with the space. Oh um, yeah, yeah. Vitamin J yeah. is his character name. That's right, Vitamin J. Thank you. <laughs> I yeah. love that name though. And I looked it up, and he was twenty four. And you know, I I was kind of like, okay, I think maybe that one. But generally, I thought they did a pretty good job with casting of like it not seeming too weird. Yeah, it wasn't like a lot of obvious stuff. You could go with him for sure, but it wasn't like. Again, we see in some movies people with five o'clock shadows playing teenagers. That wasn't here. Yeah. Or uh, the aforementioned Ben Platt and the new Dear Evan Hansen adaptation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't have to digitally de-age any of these kids. You know, we're going to have to be, put our teacher caps on now. We're going to have to give it the hard grade. Mike, I know, you know you've already expressed that you enjoy the movie. So I'm already going to tell you that you're going first. But uh, we are handing out the manila cards. We're handing out the red pens. A plus to F scale. We're giving our final grades. But of course, we got to look at our cheat sheet. we got to see what other people have said about this film. Rotten Tomatoes, 62% by the critics. 56% by the audience. So lukewarm scores there. But 3.1 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Which, if the film nerds put anything in the threes... That means they appreciate it at the very least. But whatever. Let's throw those scores away. Mike first. A plus to F scale. Red pen in your hand. What will you grade? Hamlet 2. Um, I haven't really done this in a while as far as giving a movie a grade it doesn't necessarily entirely deserve. 
uh, because like this doesn't this isn't an A plus movie or anything, but so I don't know. I just connected with it, and every time I watch it, I'm laughing my ass off, and like maybe I just have that first moment like so solidified in my mind that like I'm just constantly revisiting that screening of it every time I turn it on, which is great. I wish I had that with more movies, but there's just something about it that I gravitated towards and I really like. And I keep coming back to, um, and it's cool that not everybody is into the, I totally understand it's got so many shortcomings and problems and like, as like, uh, you know, like technically like put, put together, not very well. Okay. Like I'm, I, I know and admit all these things. Like I, I'm not delusional on that level, but I still love it. Like I can't really quite entirely put my finger on why. So I have to give it an A. Nice, nice. How about you, John? What will you grade Hamlet to? <laughs> no, I'll back it up. I'll back it up. I'm just uh, thought it would be funny to be brief. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. oh, you meant C like the grade. I thought you were like C, and you were gonna say your point. So, ooh. no, no, no. I give it a C. I give it a C <laughs> because because it's definitely a passing grade for sure. It does not deserve to fail. I don't think it's like even in danger of failing, but there are some serious issues, um, particularly more in the first half. Like some of the stuff even that we've discussed kind of reinforced it for me. Like some some parts that are set up as jokes with the racial stuff like doesn't work for me. You know, feels very dated. You know, it feels like, um, like a movie that I will always have a certain soft spot in my heart for, but that like, boy does it not stand the test of time is swingers and i'm just thinking about that that like there you know there's just certain yeah. things like the old older movies where i'm like yeah i can't stand <laughs> by this you know <laughs> like i i loved this at one time so yeah just structural issues the script isn't always perfect a lot of unevenness uh, but some fun stuff like genuinely good times and and uh it feels like in the end it's hard is in the right place and so you know Deserve something. Solid C. Like it. So I'm going to give it a B plus. I actually enjoyed the movie. I know it has flaws. I laughed at a lot of places. Yeah, I'm with you, John. Some of the racial stuff didn't age well. It's definitely clunky at the beginning. But once I was bought in, I was along for the ride. I know, John, you expressed that you kind of saw it in parts because it was throughout your day. That is not the ideal way to watch this movie. It is a 90-minute movie that should take 90 minutes of your life, and that's it, you know? So if you're listening out there and you haven't watched the movie and you, for some reason, listen to us talk for this long about it, I suggest you just watch it in, in one sitting. Have a good time and try not to piece it together as much as we did because if you just buy into the absurdity from the jump, it's probably going to be a more enjoyable experience for you. So B plus for me. Right now we get some of the fun questions. Sleeping bag. If all of us, we are at a Hamlet 2 themed slumber party for whatever reason. Um, uh, and we all bring our custom sleeping bags. Anything related, even tangentially, to this film. John, you go first. What does your Hamlet 2 sleeping bag look like? My Hamlet 2 sleeping bag is actually a Elizabeth Shue Adventures in Babysitting uh, sleeping bag. Oh, nice. oh. Chef's kiss, love it, love that good one. How about you, Mike? My sleeping bag will be a retro-fitted caftan, I guess, like the one he wore in the movie, right? Isn't that what he was? Oh, wearing? oh, like his like the dress thing you're saying, yeah. 
like that pullover sort of poncho, <laughs> like like uh, ankle length thing that he had on with no underwear underneath. Yeah, I just sew one of those into a sleeping bag. <laughs> Sleep the other way. Um, I want to go Shakespearean with this. Let's go to Hamlet one, the original. I, you know the like John. I don't know that like a haunted sleeping bag. <laughs> yes. No, but you know how, like, every time you see Shakespeare depicted in pop culture, they're dressed a certain way with the neck thing and stuff. Like, I want a frilly Shakespearean-era sleeping bag. I want... A nice Elizabethan bag? Yeah, Elizabethan style. The entire thing is like a rough... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like a... <laughs> That'd be it's great. like the most uncomfortable, <laughs> ugliest fucking thing you've ever seen. <laughs> I like the rough idea, yeah. So something along that range. Nice. Sure. Slumbers who listen to this show regularly know my favorite question every week. And that is the the old blockbuster rental question of the three of us. We walk into the magical blockbuster that has every film that has ever existed up until this point. We know we're renting Hamlet 2. And I don't know why I'm surprised because it's here every week. But I see a sign and it says rent two movies, get one free. And because we have two guests, I'm like, you know what? Let's make this a really, really, really long night. John, Mike, go to the back of the store. Get two other movies that you would want to watch with Hamlet 2 at our slumber party. So, Mike, why don't you go first? Um, okay, so just one movie, right? I got, no, I got, two. I, I narrowed it down. Two oh, each, I get two? Uh, I'm, two each? A two each? Two yeah, each two, or just, two okay, each two size. Each. I want a long slumber party. All right. I hope you want to laugh as well. Because I'm going to recommend two of my other very favorite comedies for the evening. One is this film from 1972, directed by the recently deceased Peter Bogdanovich. It's called What's Up, Doc? What's Up, Doc, of course. Starring Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. This is maybe the other movie where I just like can't stop laughing for the entire runtime. I'm just like losing my mind, and it eventually kind of just turns into like a looney tunes cartoon and not like it's not animated but i mean it's like a live action like what the hell like i honestly couldn't believe the sophistication of of the humor of the time on this so like i love this movie as well just super hilarious i don't know if bogdanovich ever made another comedy uh he never had to because i feel this one's just perfect this is a movie that a lot of people talk about in their lists of like greatest comedies of all time. I've never seen it. It's not a movie that you hear a lot of people talking about today, aside from like AFI lists and stuff. I'm I'm definitely familiar with like the poster and you know the whole Barbara Streisand of it all, but never seen it. So curious about that one. I wonder what I would think about it. But yeah, what's up, Doc? So what's your next film? All right, my next film is a sequel. Not that this movie was a sequel. Hamlet 2 is it's a sequel hilariously not a sequel. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I mean, the whole movie, <laughs> I guess. This movie is, an, again, I'm just, I'm just, look, I just can't keep myself together with these movies. Like, I, I all right, so before podcasting, uh, I was just like blazing through series, like watching every movie in a series. And the one... One movie I really, one series I really wanted to get into was the Pink Panther series. And when I got to Pink Panther 2, A Shot in the Dark from 1964, I fucking stopped because I was like, there's no way they're any better than this. This is like one of the most amazing movies I've ever seen in my life. I was just, again, dying of laughter. Blake Edwards, Peter Sellers, 
yes, I know Peter Sellers was a douchebag and everything, but like Inspector Clouseau is an incredible character and that performance tops the first one. And yeah, I just, I'm in love with that movie as well. So like those two are like probably like in some order, like maybe two and three, one, two and three, they like very much fluctuate at the top of my favorite comedy list. So I just, yeah, I had to get that out tonight, but I, I fucking love A Shot in the Dark. I just love it. Wow, interesting. Never seen that one as well. Uh, I've only seen the original, so. And the remake with Steve Martin. Those are the only two Pink Panther. And Burger! The Burger! Mike, do you have a Pink Panther tattoo? I could see you getting a Pink Panther tattoo. No, I have actually, I have some flash, like, on my walls and stuff. I have some Pink Panther, like, designs and things, but I don't think I'd ever get, get one. I loved the cartoon as a kid, but... No, and not the you know, I don't know. <laughs> I gotta get, I gotta save room for my Corey tattoo. Remember? Oh yeah, We're, we have to get matching Corey, two Corey's tattoos. Um, what a, a John, what two picks are you renting for our uh, slumber party here with Hamlet too? Yeah, um, I'm gonna go with twenty four hour party people because you should absolutely make it a Steve Coogan double feature. Nice, yeah. nice. That's a great one, yeah. Yeah, and then I kind of thought hard about this one, but I just decided to do something else that's very much in the completely silly and a little bit less seen, for sure, um, which is Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox Nice, <laughs> nice. Um, nice. That movie, I will say, was like a similar experience beforehand as with Hamlet too, which is that I looked at it in the trailers and was like, yeah, I don't think this is for me. It looks dumb. And then I laughed really, really, really hard. <laughs> <laughs> that movie is, is, is such a victim of over proliferation of these comedies at the time that I think people were just tired, including myself, right? Like I didn't go to the theater cause I'm like, I don't need to see this. But when I finally saw it, I'm like, this is hilarious. This is better than the movies I saw that I thought were awesome. Yeah. I had several people take me to the theater being like, you're just wrong. Please come and we will show you that you're wrong. And I was wrong. If this movie comes out before a lot of those other comedies that everybody saw in that era, I think people will go and watch this one. Uh, but yeah, great picks. I love those picks. That's awesome. So because we talked about these two movies... Um, I feel like I want to make a selection here, and I will be selecting Muppet Stick Manhattan, because we discussed it a lot. <laughs> solid, solid, can't argue. And Synecdoche, New York. That was the one that I hesitated over. I'm stealing yeah. it from you, John. No, it's great. I love it. I'm, I feel so happy it got included. Yeah, I just wanted to you know, make that Instagram post with it, because I felt like it should be mentioned as well. So, guys, this was awesome. I feel like we... we not only talked about the movie, but we got deep into theater theory today. <laughs> and uh, really appreciate it. Loved having you guys on. And love that we can all talk. I don't. The three of us haven't talked in 10 years together in like a try conversation like this. So that's really, really awesome. So uh, yeah, thanks again. So uh, John, anything you want to plug? And then Mike, of course. You know, I don't have a, I don't have a project in the hopper right now. I'm, I've been um, studying an awful lot of chess, which is my other passion in life and uh, playing a lot of tournaments. So that kind of leads to doing fewer projects, but you can absolutely follow me um, at Harden, AKA H-A-R-D-I-N, AKA on basically all the, all the social medias. 
uh, I'm on there. I post, you know, occasionally, especially when I'm up to something. And Mike, anything uh, you want to plug or say? Yeah, so check me out on all the other podcasts I do on the network at cageclub.me. The titular Cage Club show with Joey Lewandowski and all the other shows he and I do, like Cinemakers and uh, Viva Pod Vegas. Brian is my unofficial co-host over on my solo show, Third Time's a Charm, that takes an in-depth look at the third installment of a franchise. Uh, Go listen to our Spider-Man The Dragon's Challenge episode that dropped recently very fun time and finally the monsters that made us with my co-host dan cologne where we the final friday of every month we are looking at a different uh universal monster movie we're going through the original universal monster films frankenstein dracula and the like the whole crew so please join us and that's everything the variety approved monsters that made us what did they say uh 12 horror movie podcasts to make you scream there you go i hope they meant that as a compliment (laughs) yeah i think so (laughs) well rest on those laurels not everyone gets a mention in variety magazine like so yeah i go from the bergen record to variety magazine in three years so (laughs) what's next the world so thanks guys Big thank you to Mike Manzi, as always, for taking the time, taking so much time in his schedule for High School Slumber Party. And John Harden as well. I know he's been pretty busy lately, just moved into a new place, as he said on the podcast. That's always hard. That's probably the hardest thing you can do, moving. (laughs) So, yeah, thank you to the both of them for taking the time. Can't wait to have them on again. So Monday, we're going to have a surprise episode. No trailer for it. No homework for it. It is a mess, but I love it. I can't wait for you to hear it. So just look out for what Monday's Valentine's Day special will be. And one more thing before I let you go, guys. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop to look around once in a while, you could miss it. Let's leave you with another song off the Hamlet 2 soundtrack. How about a Elton John rendition? Someone Saved My Life Tonight. Love that song. This is, of course, by the people in the play. So not by Elton John. Don't want to disappoint you. But anyway, listen to the song and have a good time. And thank you so much, as always, for listening. Later, dudes. When I think of those beasts and lights, muddy nights, Curtains drawn in the little room downstairs. Bring on down alone, you really should have been there. Sitting like a princess perched in her electric chair. And it's one more beer, and I won't hear you anymore. We've all gone crazy Altar bound in the tide of sweet freedom with
whispered in my ear, you're a butterfly. And butterflies are free to fly, fly away. Are you still here? It's over. Go home. Go.